Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 69. The Perils of the Perfectionist. The Emperor Domitian once commented that nobody would believe there was a plot against the Emperor until the Emperor was dead. This one phrase sums up one of the most controversial of Roman leaders. No contemporary historian, or indeed one from the following 1800 years, had a good word to say about him. After his death, the Senate damned his memory and his statues were pulled down and destroyed. He was universally condemned for having presided over a reign of terror at least as bad as those of Caligula and Nero. More recent studies, though, have revealed a more complex and intriguing character. The more measured view of Domitian is that he was a competent and vigorous administrator with his heart, at least initially, in the right place. Only in his later years did he allow the paranoia that goes with office to take over. Domitian's main failing throughout his reign was his inability to operate politically. He simply wasn't able to keep on side those interested groups that he needed to influence. Titus Flavius Domitianus was born on the 24th of October 51 AD and spent much of his early life with his mother and sister while his father and brother were off fighting in Judea or other parts of the empire. Titus had been educated at the court of Claudius along with Britannicus, but Domitian, nearly 11 years younger, wasn't so fortunate. By the time he was ready for education, the fortunes of the Flavians had waned a little and he was educated at home. As we have heard, Domitian was in Rome during the tumultuous events of the year of the four emperors. An impressionable 18-year-old will have had his worldview shaped by events going on around him, and what was going on around Domitian was utter chaos. He watched as the Senate declared for one man after another, and must have developed an utter disdain for this body of men, who seemed to swing one way and then the other, almost at whim. He must have thought this method of government was simply not working. When Mucianus took control of Rome for Vespasian, he had Domitian with him to act as a mouthpiece. Mucianus was really in charge, but the young man was the new leader's son, and as such had the authority of the family. He was put up in front of the Senate and asked to make a speech. Even Tacitus, who cannot be said to be Domitian's greatest fan, said the speech was brief and restrained, and the emperor's son dealt very well with difficult questions. Domitian was moved into the imperial residence and given the title Caesar. He was then used by Mucianus as the voice of Vespasian in his dealings with the Senate. Mucianus and Domitian appointed a large number of praetors, prefects and consuls. It is said they once appointed 20 in a single day. Clearly the government of the empire needed to carry on in the absence of the new emperor. Things couldn't wait until Vespasian arrived in Rome. According to the historian Cassius Dio, even Vespasian himself took some offence at the speed of these appointments. He wrote to his younger son, thanking him in his own witty way for allowing him to carry on being emperor. During the reign of Vespasian, Domitian was given many honours. He was consul six times, but it was a new type of consulship. In the Republican times, a consul would hold his job for a year, unless removed by death or other exceptional event. By the time Vespasian was ruling, it was quite common for the consulship to change during the year. The two men who held the title at the beginning of the year still retained the prestige of having the year named after them. These were called ordinary consulships. Quite often, they would then hand power to other men. These secondary consulships, without the prestige of the year naming, were called suffect consulships. Most of Domitian's consular honours were of this type. Titus didn't improve the situation for his younger brother during his reign. 
The only thing that was clear was that Domitian was his heir. None of Titus's marriages had produced any children, and thus Domitian was the only choice. Nobody expected him to inherit quite as soon as he did, though. Of course, given history's general dis- damnation of Domitian, stories abound that he was responsible for his sainted brother's death. There was unlikely to be much brotherly love between them, after all they hardly knew each other. There is no evidence to suggest that Domitian had anything to do with Titus's death, though. They weren't in the same place when Titus became ill, and early death through illness was not uncommon in the Roman world. What is known, though, is that Domitian wasted very little time on mourning or formalities when he heard that his brother was dying. He was in the Praetorian camp before you could say Imperator, promising them a donative. He was declared emperor by the guards, but had to wait for the Senate to ratify the decision. After Titus's death, they decided to honour the dead emperor before declaring the new one. No doubt this added to Domitian's negative view of that ancient body. When he started to rule, it became clear that Domitian had his own idea as to how the empire should be governed. He moved further away from the concept that Rome was the centre of everything and the Senate was the real ruling body. During his reign, the centre of power shifted. Power resided with the emperor. Wherever the emperor was, that was where the power was. Domitian spent much of his time in Italy, not in Rome, but in his private villa near Alba, about 15 miles away. He was not a very sociable man, and unlike most leading Romans, was not particularly fond of drinking alcohol. Dinners with Domitian would be courteous and formal, but quick. After the meal, the emperor would go for a walk and then go to bed. Domitian's dinner parties were probably not much fun, but they're an example of how seriously he took his responsibilities. Of course, the temperate habits of the emperor and his liking for solitary walks led to whisperings that he liked to be on his own just a bit too much. It was rumoured he enjoyed stabbing flies with a penknife. When people asked where Domitian was, the courtiers joked, he's in the palace with not even a fly. What is clear is that the emperor was happy at his Alban villa, he was able to enjoy his favourite sports, including archery, at which he is known to be very skilled. It is said he could fire four arrows between the splayed fingers of a slave. One can only wonder about how the slave felt about it, but apparently no slaves were harmed. Still, please don't try this at home. Domitian's mutual hatred with the Senate only grew stronger, on the Senate's part, when Domitian took some interesting and unusual honorific titles for himself. Instead of saying he was Princeps, the first citizen, he made people call him Your Lord and God Domitian, and he later changed the names of the months of September and October to Germanicus and Domitianus after his title and name. Domitian made himself censor for life, meaning that he could control who would become a senator. Domitian married Domitia Longina, his great love, but they only had one child, a son who died when he was very young. As soon as Domitian became emperor, he increased the pay of the soldiers from 300 to 400 sesterces. The army loved him for this and continued to love him throughout his reign. Domitian wanted to rule like Augustus. He saw himself as the real successor of the great man. He rebuilt the Temple of Jupiter and built a temple to his father and brother, the Temple of Vespasian and Titus, in which the people were encouraged to worship. This was to remind everyone that he, Domitian, was the son of one god and the brother of another, and so was the only person fit to rule. He had many of the ideals of his illustrious predecessor, but unfortunately didn't have the political skill to see them through to fruition. The Roman people benefited greatly from Domitian's early rule because he made things fairer. 
He made the tax system more equitable and his judgments at trials were reasonable and soundly thought out. He promoted people to do important jobs because he thought they were able to do the job well, not because they were descended from somebody important. In all ways, except his dealings with the Senate and other important people, he ruled well and with intelligence. He also threw really great games in the newly built Flavian Amphitheatre, which the people thought were marvellous. They never really loved their benefactor though. Domitian was a workaholic and would spend his time at the games dealing with correspondence rather than watching the action. This didn't go down too well with the fans. Domitian was the archetypal perfectionist. He worked incredibly hard to oversee the smallest detail. Because every provincial governor knew the emperor's eye would be on his work, corruption in the provinces reduced. When he died, his successor could find very little in his edicts or administration to change. He was certainly one of the most hard-working emperors the Romans ever had. These days, he would be called a control freak. He was interested in every little detail of running the empire, and nothing got past him. If it needed attention, then it got attention. He attended to the smallest detail of government. Now, this is not always a good thing. If managers are not good at managing, then they can create chaos by getting too involved and inhibit the ability of others to do their jobs well. Domitian, though, was a very good manager, and things ran rather well under him. He was consul a number of times following the example of his father and brother, but he let other good men be consuls as well. He didn't just give the jobs to his family. One of the times Domitian took a turn at being consul, he chose a quiet man called Marcus Cocceus Nerva as his colleague. Nobody was quite sure why. The emperor saw that the city of Rome was still suffering from the fires of 64 and 80 AD, and many buildings were in ruin, so the emperor built and rebuilt until the city was magnificent again. He also ordered the building of the Arch of Titus to commemorate his brother. This arch still stands in Rome today, and is one of its greatest monuments. Many more emperors after Domitian would think that building a magnificent triumphal arch was a super way of showing everyone just how great they were. Domitian then started to increase taxation for the richer members of society, and reduced the amount of land on which they were allowed to grow grapes for wine. This seems to have stemmed from a genuine wish to increase the amount of land for the growing of cereal crops, crops which the Roman people really needed. Again though, this was against the interests of the elite, and so further antagonised many of the senators. The reigns of Vespasian and Titus had been relatively peaceful. After father and son had put down the Jewish revolt, there had been little other activity on the borders to require their input. The same was true of the early days of Domitian's Imperium, but rumblings along the Rhine soon caused him to look outward. One thing Domitian had never achieved was a great military success. Restlessness among the German tribes gave him the opportunity to fill a hole in his resume. Domitian travelled to the Rhine border with a large army to take on a well-organised but not particularly mighty tribe of barbarians called the Chatti. It was a relatively easy victory and not very spectacular, but Domitian gave himself the title Germanicus anyway. He then returned to Rome and celebrated a triumph, secure in the knowledge that his resume was now complete. Tacitus scathingly referred to Domitian's victory as a mock triumph. In late 85, a more real threat presented itself. To the north of the Danube, on the opposite banks to the province of Moesia, lay the land of the Dacians. This roughly corresponds to the modern country of Romania. The Dacians had caused some minor problems for the Romans in the past, but like many of the barbarian tribes, 
had not been organised or united enough to do any real damage. Now, though, they'd come together under the leadership of a king called Decebalus and crossed the Danube into Roman territory. Nobody is too sure why the Dacians crossed the Danube. Maybe, like the Goths in the 4th century, they were being squeezed by incursions from tribes from further north. Maybe they thought that Rome would be weakened after taking on the Chatti, and therefore there was a window of opportunity for invasion. Either way, they crossed the river and killed the governor of Moesia, Fontilus Agrippa. Domitian marched on Moesia and drove the Dacians out. Then he allowed the general Cornelius Fuscus to cross the river and carry out a punishment raid into Dacian territory. This was a bit of a failure and Fuscus was killed. Domitian simply raised another army and marched on the Dacians again. Victory was achieved at the Battle of Tepe in 88, after which the war seems simply to have stopped without any formal peace treaty. Instead, the emperor built strong fortifications in the gap between the Rhine and the Danube to keep the barbarians out. Now, history likes turning points. It likes to pinpoint the moment at which things changed and another course was taken. Caligula's reign of madness is popularly thought to have begun with his illness six months into his reign. The build-up of psychological factors which added to his madness are noted, but the turning point was his illness. The popular turning point for Domitian was the Saturninus Rebellion. Lucius Antonius Saturninus was the Roman commander in Upper Germany. His motives for rebellion are still not known, but for some reason he and his four legions declared against Domitian. The emperor marched on Saturninus with his army. He also summoned an army from Spain to join them in putting it down. This legion was led by Marcus Ulpius Trianus, better known to us now as Trajan. As it happens, by the time they reached the rebels, the governor of Lower Germany had already put down the rebellion. Retribution was swift and terrible. Anyone close to Saturninus was executed. Although no senator could be identified as having been directly involved, Domitian's suspicion of the Senate festered and grew. He made a formal peace with Decebalus in order to be able to concentrate on the supposed internal enemies. Paranoia growing inside him, Domitian took his eye off the ball with the peace. He made Dacia a client kingdom of Rome, which included giving the Dacians some assistance to build forts. Not too many years later, these forts would need to be taken by the Romans as part of another Dacian campaign. This lack of judgment was uncharacteristic of the perfectionist emperor. By 91, the empire was at peace again and Domitian could concentrate on Rome. The executions began. A vestal virgin called Cornelia was executed for having a relationship with a man. The punishment for this so-called crime was to be buried alive. This punishment was so barbaric it was very rarely carried out, but Domitian insisted the sentence be carried out according to the rules. Many senators were also executed. One of them wrote a funny play about Domitian. He was executed. Another wrote an article praising one of the Flavian's enemies. He was executed. One of Domitian's relatives stated he didn't believe in the gods. Domitian let him live in peace. No, not really. He was executed. So little balanced historical writing from the time exists that it is impossible to develop a view on whether the stories were true or that these executions were justified. They are portrayed as killings perpetrated on the whim of a deranged tyrant. Maybe this was the case, but maybe Domitian had a reason to be paranoid. It's certainly the case that the emperor had many other senators, equestrians and others executed or exiled. 
Many were frightened it would be their turn next. Pliny, who had watched Vesuvius erupt, said, At a time when seven of my friends had been put to death or banished, there were clear indications that something similar was awaiting me. Clearly he was expecting his head to end up on a spike. Christian history has it that the second persecution of the Christians took place under Domitian, and that St John the Evangelist survived after being put into a vat of boiling oil. In the end, it was not the senators who did for Domitian. The emperor's own personal servants were in on the final deadly conspiracy. One of the servants, Stephanus, pretended that his arm was broken and went round for many days in a large bandage in which he hid a large dagger. Domitian had been given a prophecy which said he would die around noon. Every day he would be nervous until after lunch. He kept a sword under his pillow in case he was attacked. One day, another of Domitian's servants, Parthenius, secretly took the sword away and yet another told him that it was past noon. Domitian felt safe. Stephanus ran in and told the emperor he had uncovered a plot. Then he pulled out his dagger and stabbed his master. Domitian was a strong man and although badly wounded he fought back. The two men fought on the floor with Stephanus trying to stab the emperor and Domitian trying to grab the dagger and gouge Stephanus' eyes out. In the end it took four more men to overpower Domitian, but eventually they were too much for him. The Emperor Domitian died on the 18th of September 96 AD, aged 45. He had reigned for 15 generally successful years, but due to the hatred of the Senate and the upper classes, his memory was damned and he would be remembered as a depraved monster. The Flavian dynasty was gone after just 27 years. This was now a worrying time. When the Julio-Claudian dynasty collapsed, there was civil war, chaos and a year of four emperors. Later, when the Nerva and Antonine dynasty collapses, there will be civil war, chaos and a year with five emperors. And when the Severan dynasty collapses, there will be civil war, chaos and a year with six emperors. This time, though, something was already in place. The Senate, it seems, had known the emperor was on his way out, as they had, as far as they were concerned, the perfect replacement waiting in the wings. Next time, we'll hear about that perfect replacement and about the even better man that was to follow. If you'd like to contact me with any feedback, then please do so by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or come and friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. Please visit the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com On the website, you'll find a donation button. This is a hobby for me, not a source of income, but all donations are, of course, very warmly welcomed. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.